Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, let's uh, turn our attention now to an area of the economy which has not necessarily, uh, let's say, been illuminated by Donald Trump's uh, presidency, and that is the retail sector. And here to tell us more is Chris Volke, is the chief executive of Store Capital. Chris, thanks very much for being here. Now, I just want to read you one uh, note. This comes actually from uh, a, a Credit Suisse report, and this has to do with the deterioration in real estate investment trusts, but specifically in the mall uh, segment. It says uh, this has to do with the associated mortgage-backed securities and CDS, uh, right, so, uh, swaps. Barely a quarter into 2017, year-to-date retail store closings have already surpassed those of 2008. Is that scary? It is scary. There are probably close to 9,000 stores slated to be closed potentially this year. Um, now, the good news for us is that we're 85% into service space and manufacturing. So we have 15%, give or take, exposure to retail. And of that, very few of our locations are anywhere close to any of the chains that are suffering the big closures. Well, uh, so let's talk about your firm, your chief executive officer, uh, officer of Store Capital, which is a middle market real estate capital solutions firm. Are you going into some of these uh, mid-tier retailers and these mid-tier malls and trying to help them structure their debts and their businesses so that they can emerge from this, uh, this deterioration in credit worthiness uh, that we've seen on a broad-based level in retail? Uh, no. Okay. The, the, so what it, what so, it, so store is stands for single tenant operational real estate. So we focus on profit center properties. So we do business mostly in the service space. So think about health clubs and fitness or early childhood education, movie theaters, uh, uh, you know, veterinary clinics, that kind of thing. So we do lots of lots of things in the service space. We do about 15% in the retail space. And we started the company in 2011, which meant we had a little bit of foresight to know that, hey, the internet is here. We know that you have to be an experiential retailer. And then clearly there are retailers that are expanding in today's economy. But uh, the, the assets that we're owning would be, let's say, in the furniture space, hunting, fishing, um, uh, you know, home improvement, things like that, um, a hobby space, uh, and which is a, just a much different kind of space and, and things that you would not typically buy over the Internet, things you'd like to try out. Can you put numbers to just how different the fates of these experiential uh, stores are to their retail, their like physical retail uh, brethren? Well, I, I would say that our average retailer is probably growing year to year about 8% top line uh, in sales. So, uh, and some of that same store sales growth and some of that's adding new locations. Um, uh, so these are vibrant uh, retail companies. And again, it's only about 15% of what we do, but it's um, uh, typically people, for example, want to try a mattress or they want to try a sofa they're, and they, they have a hard time uh, returning things if they're, if they're delivered to them and so on. So, uh, so these are the types of things that we think long-term uh, will uh, do well. We don't think that people will just stay in their, on their sofa and order everything that they can. So, uh, Would it be okay to classify you as an expert in credit? 
I you know a little, I'm, I'm little bit at, about it. You're yeah. right. Well, and the, re- the reason because I'm wondering if you could just walk us through the the credit landscape right now and give us your thoughts, not just as a, as an investor, but as someone that is a practitioner uh, about the kinds of deals you're seeing and the mm-hmm. kinds of investors that are being uh, courted because yields are uh, still historically low. Well, I mean, I've I've always thought in our space that credit's mispriced. Uh, people have a tendency to think that a strong credit equates to an investment-grade contract. So otherwise, if I have an investment-grade tenant, I must have an investment-grade contract. Um, uh, if I have a pretty piece of real estate, it must be a good investment. I mean, these are things that are not necessarily true. A good credit does not equate to a good contract. A pretty piece of real estate does not equate to a good investment. Just to give, uh, maybe give an example so people understand how that works. Well, uh, you could have a company that's an investment-grade credit, but you could pay twice what the real estate would cost to build for it, for, for example. You may not have uh, proper alignments of interest, so leases allow the tenant to go dark anytime. You don't have master leases. You have no financial reporting. If you look at uh, our company today, we get financial reporting from about 97% of our tenants, which is just staggering at the store level, not just at the corporate level, 100% of the corporate level, but at 97% at the store level. So that's just uh, unbelievable. Where are the, uh, the the companies that you invest in, the stores? Are they in A-level malls, C-level malls? Are they not in malls? I would say most of them are not in malls. Um, uh, so let's, if, I, if I have 3% of our properties that are within a quarter of a mile, roughly, of a Macy's, a Kmart, a Penny's, a Sears, uh, that tells you that we're not really in malls. We're so, in, in strip centers, more or less, in front of Walmarts, in front of Targets. Uh, sometimes if it's a, if it's a restaurant uh, or if it's another retail store, we might be adjacent to one of those kinds of properties. Well, I, I guess I, I, what I'm trying to get at is we've heard a lot of hedge fund managers say that shorting mall-related debt is the next big short. And we've seen a lot of big investors who are very respected go in and try to do this uh, via derivative wagers, among others. Do you think that they're onto something based on what you have seen in your personal investing experience? I think if you could find a pure way to short uh, mall-related debt, it might be an interesting investment. Uh, it's it's far removed from what I do for a living, but it might be an interesting investment. But what I've seen is the things that people are shorting tend to be somewhat blunt instruments, so they're not exactly pure mall-related debt. There is no pure thing to short in CDS as there was in residential real estate uh, prior to the Great Recession. Some of your customers might be restaurants, for example, right? Like for ex- uh, sure. Burger King, right? If mm-hmm. you, you need some financing or some help with the franchise, then you're going to lend your expertise to that. You're in Scottsdale, Arizona. When I thought, when I saw that, and I remembered, of course, what you have to live through to be in Scottsdale, Arizona. Let's say back in 2008. I'm wondering if you can give us a little perspective as to why this cycle. Uh, appears the way it does, and and not to confuse it with what happened in 2008. Right. Well, to put it in perspective, we've been in this business for about 35 years, um, and this is our third public company, so this is not my first rodeo. Um, And every company we've run has outperformed the benchmark, so it didn't matter whether the 10-year treasury was 650, 450. Today we're at 230, so we've uh, always outperformed the benchmarks. Um, uh, Our stores, uh, the assets that we own, are today in 48 states, uh, the biggest state being Texas at 12%, no other states north of 10. Um, so we're all over the country, and we're providing uh, financial, real estate net lease solutions to middle market and larger companies. And for them, we're providing a financial solution. For our investors, we're providing them with the opportunity to, to own some really good quality real estate investments. How many competitors do you have? Have you noticed that the field has gotten more crowded as uh, investment firms look for new opportunities? 
So far, I would say no. Um, uh, and and I we sold our first public company in 2001 to GE Capital. Uh, today, my office is actually in a uh, space that used to be occupied by the successor company to the first company we created. Uh, GE must have bought 10 people in our space, so they, they uh, almost sucked the oxygen out of the room buying people and, and growing it. And today, GE Capital has, has ceased to exist. So uh, I would say that there, it's very, very hard to create an institutional player in the space. Most of the people that are uh, competitors of ours are small to medium-sized landlords. They're privately held. Uh, there are very few of you know good quality uh, public you know landlords, and in the marketplace, by the way, that our our market alone is about two and a half trillion dollars in size. So, uh, and and here we are with uh, an equity capitalization that's just north of four billion. Acquisitions. What are you looking for? Well, our guidance this year so far is to do nine hundred million dollars net of sales. So we'll sell properties from time to time. Last year we did about a B and one fifty. So uh, the year before that we did about the same. Um, we've been. In general, doing somewhere around $100 million a month worth of business, uh, we've been doing 30 to 40 transactions every quarter. We've been adding to our customer base, and about a third of the business we do is repeat business with existing tenants. What do you think will be the hallmark to look for to indicate that the retail Armageddon, as some people have been calling it, with the incredible uh, rush of stores that have been closed, that this, that this retail uh, bloodbath is reaching a crescendo? You know, I think that the retail bloodbath that you're talking about is mostly going to affect malls, uh, where you're dealing with large anchors that are having issues, uh, which uh, can cause a lot of smaller retailers to also close down their shops. And some of those smaller retailers are also closing down their shops on their own. Um, uh, if you look at strip malls, for example, most of those malls are filled with uh, – you know, a Walmart and then lots of service providers, could be tax providers, could be yoga studios. Um, uh, and I think that uh, a lot of those malls are doing great. So, but a lot of people say that we're not in the ninth inning, if you're going to use a baseball any, na- analogy. We're not necessarily nearing the end of uh, the pain that we've seen in the retail industry. I mean, would you agree? Uh, I do agree. Um, I think that uh, you know, we're going to see uh, the demise of some very old and um, storied names in retail over time. Well, thank you so much. Truly fascinating to, to speak with you, and uh, thank you so much for coming to the studios. Chris Volk, he is Chief Executive Officer of Store Capital, talking about middle market investing in uh, retail spaces, but really focusing on experiences, not just selling stuff. Well, yesterday, Home Capital Group, which is Canada's biggest alternative mortgage lender, plunged more than 60% after disclosing that it needed emergency financing that was uh, done and secured at very un. financially unpleasant terms, let's just say. Uh, Now the stock is rebounding a bit, but I really want to get a sense of how much this company serves as a harbinger for the broader Canadian uh, mortgage market, which has been on fire. Doug Alexander, uh, please join us and make sense of this. Doug Alexander is a Canadian financial uh, services reporter with Bloomberg, and he comes to us from Toronto. Doug, uh, can you just put this into broader context? I mean, is Home Capital Group considered... Uh, sort of a a red flag, a canary uh, that sort of signifies some deeper, broader pain in the mortgage market in Canada. 
Yes, good morning. Um, home capital, uh, it, it, short answer would be uh, no. Um, they are actually, uh, as you point out, uh, the largest alternative lender uh, in Canada. They, they do, they've been around for like 31 years, um, and what they really do is they do specialize in a certain kind of mortgage. It's not necessarily like the subprime that you'd see in the U.S. that has caused so many problems during the uh, financial crisis, but they do provide uh, loans to people that may have uh, a bit more difficulty uh, uh, getting qualifications through uh, the major Canadian banks, whether it be because they have more complicated um, uh, income streams or they could be foreigners that have just moved into the country. But the bottom line, uh, home capital has about $20 billion or less than $20 billion of uh, loans, um, uh, mortgage loans, and the Canadian uh, mortgage market essentially is about $1.1 trillion in Canadian. Hey, hey, Doug, you know, I'm wondering if you could just step back and, and explain a little bit about the real estate market, the residential real estate market in, in Canada, because uh, the government has, I believe, uh, already proposed a uh, tax uh, on f- foreign purchases. Uh, also, you've seen explosive uh, increases in uh, real estate values in cities like Vancouver. And also in Toronto, you got a lot of speculators. What if you could just kind of pull it all together for us. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, market when it comes to real estate in Canada. Um, and really, uh, as you point out, there has been a huge uh, price appreciation uh, as of late. It's really a um, it's really a market that is very, very lumpy. There are two areas in the country where uh, you could argue that there's an overheated housing market, which is uh, Toronto currently um, and Vancouver. Vancouver's um, kind of eased off a little bit, but uh, as you point out in um, uh, Vancouver last year, there were uh, uh, measures taken uh, to uh, curb uh, some of that demand um, by targeting uh, foreign investors with a uh, with a tax. Um, that's been imposed now in uh, tr- to cover the Toronto market as well. But these are very two very specific markets in the country. If you look across uh, the country, and that there are other markets that are are um, uh, seeing a, a slowdown um, for whatever um, economic reasons. Calgary being one of them, um, and other major cities like Montreal that really just haven't seen that um, uh, that that same level of appreciation. So it's really a, a a country that has two overheated housing markets. And let's be clear, that's actually concerned uh, policymakers um, and uh, you know those in the financial services industry and uh, and uh, you know politicians at the local level as well. Well, I just want to bring this back to Home Capital Group because yeah. this uh, is this company is based in Toronto, which is one of the overheated markets that you point to, and they have been the subject of a regulatory probe, uh, basically looking into whether their lending standards were overly lax. In other words, they were lending perhaps money to people who couldn't afford to pay it back. I mean, I guess that from that perspective, you have to wonder. Is this a problem? Are we seeing a repeat, perhaps on a smaller scale, of what we saw leading up to 2008 in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't think that's what uh, what the uh, you know the analysts and uh, and uh, other observers in the industry industry are looking at. They're looking at home capital as really a very company specific issue. And I think to understand the current context that we're in uh, with home capital, we have to kind of go back a couple of years. And really, what their problem is is a problem of disclosure. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, they uh, they had uh, issues with uh, some mortgages from outside brokers. 
brokers uh, that uh, that turned out to be uh, approved by um, because some of the information on their income was falsified. Now, as far as we've been told since, there's been really no problems with those mortgages. But at the time in 2015, uh, the uh, company cut ties with. Uh, about 45 brokers. The problem is that initially they kind of downplayed that. They kind of hid that information uh, in their um, quarterly results. And when they were asked about it during the conference calls with the analyst and investor community, they really kind of um, sidestepped it. That brought concerns right. with the uh, Canadian regulator, Ontario's right. regulator. And well, that's where their problems have surfaced as of late. Well, um, Doug Alexander, I wish we could continue because it's a fascinating story. We're going to have to leave it there. Doug Alexander is Canada's financial services reporter for Bloomberg coming to us from Toronto. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. is, quote, having one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. That's according to Chief Executive Officer Mark Fields. Uh, today, after Ford Motor Company reported earnings that underwhelmed, uh, certainly traders, the shares are down uh, more than a percentage point, uh, based on the idea that the company is spending more on driverless technology now, uh, cost, uh, cutting more costs and trying to prepare for the future. To sort of explain the road ahead, I am very pleased to bring in Bob Shanks, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Ford Motor Company coming to us from Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. First, I just wanted to gauge the mood inside Ford headquarters. I mean, do people feel like it's kind of not fair that Ford is now pouring money into uh, driverless technology and uh, more electric cars and investors are not impressed, whereas Tesla, all they have to do is say, you know, energy and everybody cheers. Well, I can tell you, uh, you know, how I feel. I'm frustrated, uh, frankly, because um, while we're creating value in terms of the core business today, uh, and certainly our dividend is strong and it's sustainable even through a downturn, um, we we have laid out a plan to participate in what, what's going to be a transformation of the industry uh, that will pay off as it will for others that are working on you know similar technologies um, in the future. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be much of a recognition of that because I think people are focused more on the near term. I would just say we're not pouring, uh, you know resources into that. The vast majority of the investments we're making are in the core business, uh, but we, we are investing appropriately and prudently in autonomy, electrification, mobility, and so forth. So that's, that's true, but you know we're going to continue to do uh, what we're doing because we know it's right and we know where the industry is heading and we have to be prepared for that and we, we plan to participate that and, and to, to create value by doing so. Bob, I want to talk a little bit about the here and now with you and just get your thoughts on Lincoln and the Lincoln Navigator and the refresh that's going on. 
Yeah, that is, uh, that's a really big opportunity for us, the, the Navigator as well as the Ford Expedition. We just uh, revealed those products at the Lincoln at the New York uh, Auto Show, an expedition a bit, er, a bit earlier. This is the first complete ground-up redesign in a long time. It's gonna, uh, they're both going to take aluminum bodies. They're going to be on the same sort of platforms as the F-150, which has been usually successful, and the reaction to that product has been phenomenal. They'll be coming out, uh, I think the launches are in the third quarter, probably hit the market in the fourth, and they're very high-margin products, so it's a big opportunity for us. Just quickly, where are they made? Are they saying the same Kansas City they're made, plant as the, F, as the F-Series? They're made at uh, Kentucky Truck, which is where we make the Super Duty, but they have their own body shop and their own uh, paint shop. You know, Bob, I do want to just uh, touch on used car prices. I know that Ford mm-hmm. uh, did say today that they see used car prices falling 6% this year. Can you put that into perspective, whether uh, used car values are falling faster than you've been expecting uh, and the road ahead for the rest of the year? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say they're not falling faster than what we uh, have been expecting over the last number of months. Uh, what happened about a year ago, actually, this time is that we started to talk about and guide to uh, a decline in used car values related to the fact that the industry has been leasing at uh, levels that you know we've never seen before over the last number of years in a rising industry. And then you know a lot of those vehicles now are starting to come um, back off lease. So we we expected. A decline. We adjusted our view of that decline in November last year, and everything that we see today suggests that everything's happening and unfolding as we had expected. So we have seen a year-over-year decline of 7% uh, at Ford. That's in line with what's happened overall across the industry. And what I mentioned in the call today is that we expect on average uh, used car values to decline about 6% uh, over the full year. But what about the charge-offs in Ford's uh, credit unit? Have you Mm -hmm. seen delinquencies and write-downs increase at a faster pace than you've been expecting? Well, they've been increasing from where they had been, and they, but they've been at historical lows. So when we look at the all the metrics around delinquencies, uh, the frequency of uh, defaults, uh, the severity of those defaults, they're only approaching what you know we would consider to be historical norms. So they were extremely low when we came out of the downturn for a number of years. They're just uh, approaching what you know we would call normal. Uh, and in fact, in, in uh, recent periods, we've seen you know some slowdown, if you will, in terms of, of the um, the pace of that change. So we feel that we've captured that appropriately in the outlook for Ford Credit for the full year. Bob, uh, just taking a look at the shares of uh, Ford, I mean, they're down about 5% so far this year, but you're paying a 5.25% dividend. Mm-hmm. You, uh, if you were talking directly to, and, I, and I'm sure you are in a way, uh, speaking directly to shareholders who maybe bought into the Ford idea, let's say, two, three years ago after the financial debacle, wh- what would you say to them today? Well, clearly, we've delivered seven years of, of very, very strong performance right across the board. This is a different company than it was uh, going into the downturn. Uh, we've done a lot of restructuring. It's a much fitter company. It's ready for another downturn. Uh, and in particular, relative to the dividend, you know, we have staked uh, a very strong position that we intend and plan and believe we have the capability of paying that regular dividend at the level that it's at when we go into the, uh, the downturn throughout that downturn. So, you know, for those interested in a good return, because as you said, 5%. Five, I mean, yeah, and you're paying, what, 15, 15 cents a share? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and in addition to that, over the last uh, two years, we've paid a supplemental dividend, uh, and that opportunity still exists as, as we move forward because we don't see any signs that you know the, the recession that ultimately will happen is on the horizon. So we think we've got a, a great story to tell for those that are particularly interested in, in dividend, a great return. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. As always, uh, Bob Shanks is the executive vice president and the chief financial officer of the Ford Motor Company based in Dearborn, Michigan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.